morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Pastor Jason and I wanted to tag team a short series leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And so I'm going to be sharing the message this Sunday. And then Jason's going to be bringing you a complimentary message uh, next, next Sunday. We thought this would be a really uh, fun way to prepare both of our sites for the Good Friday and Easter season ahead. Okay, let me start with a question. When you look at that cross, what does it mean to you? For hundreds of millions of Christians, over 2,000 years, the cross has been the ultimate symbol of love and grace. Uh, what comes to my mind is 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross is so central and so revelatory in terms of the heart of God. It's actually the basis upon which we define and understand what true love is. Or think of Jesus' own words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I believe Scripture proclaims and then reinforces again and again and again the truth that the cross reveals a God of life and hope and love. And that's a powerful message for us today, but maybe it was even more powerful to ancient peoples who, um, let's say ancient pagan conceptions of God, where the God or gods were believed to be capricious, maybe even malevolent, certainly cold and different to many um, of the struggles that humans face. And and ultimately self-serving. The idea that there was a good creator God who self-sacrificially loved his creation was a transformative message, and it still can be a transformative truth. So I hope that when you look at the cross, that's what it means to you, that it is a symbol of life and love and hope, and it's a powerful anchor holding you firm in the conviction that God is loving and God is good and God is gracious and glorious. But I'm also aware that not everyone sees the cross that way. And there are actually many who are actively trying to steer you away from understanding the cross in that way. Over the last several decades, there's been an accusation leveled against the cross that has gained traction It appeared first within the atheist community as a way to completely undermine the credibility of Christianity, but lately it's also been picked up by um, certain uh, Christian theologians and pastors and leaders. And that accusation is this, that the traditional understanding of the cross, the traditional meaning and purpose that Christians have placed upon that event needs to be discarded because that traditional understanding is really a twisted picture. It's cosmic child abuse. According to this accusation, the cross, as historically understood, reveals a wrathful, wicked God who demands a blood sacrifice in order to forgive us and love us. 
and he extracts that sacrifice from Jesus, exhausting all of his anger and malice onto Jesus instead of us. And we're supposed to understand this and then be thankful for this, even though it ought to strike us, according to this view, as kind of morally reprehensible. Right? If an anger-fueled father beat his son to death in order to spare others, and if that happened a few doors down in our neighborhood, that wouldn't inspire praise from us. Right? So why, would the atheist argue, would Christians try and spin the cross as some kind of good thing when that's essentially what's happening? And why would you worship God? Why... What kind of, if that is the way God solves problems, what in the world makes him worthy of your worship? He doesn't even, uh, they would argue, he's not even worthy of your respect. Although it's nuanced in different ways, the accusation that the traditional understanding of the cross needs to be rejected or at least strongly amended is alive and well. And I bet you in these next few weeks leading up to Good Friday, you're going to hear it from different media sources. Now let's stop and think about what precisely is being attacked because it's not quite accurate to say the cross is being attacked. It's a traditional way of understanding, and I would argue a biblical way of understanding uh, part of what is happening at the cross that is being attacked. And this view is probably known to you but, uh, and probably embraced by you, but not for its technical uh, title. The technical title of it is Penal Substitutionary Atonement, or PSA. The word penal means related to punishment for an offense, so like a penalty. Substitution is the act of a person taking the place of another, and the word atonement means a reparation or a satisfaction from a wrong or an injury. Something that makes amends and allows two parties who were once um, broken apart and fractured and at enmity to be reconciled. So penal substitutionary atonement is the act of a person taking the penalty for someone else's offenses in such a way that amends are said to have been made so that reconciliation and a new path forward is actually possible. Now, many, many Christians kind of believe or embrace a view or the view penal substitutionary atonement, but that's really technical language. It's probably more uh, readily uh, accessible through phrases like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? When we say Jesus died for our sins, what we're acknowledging is that Jesus is the substitute. He was punished. He bore the punishment that should have come to us. It was placed on him. On the cross, he took our sin those who receive him as Savior and Lord can now be atoned uh, or his sacrifice provides a mechanism, a way for our sins to be atoned for so that we can be reconnected to God. 
So the traditional, and I would argue basic idea that Jesus died for our sins, that's part of what's at the heart of the gospel, is in the technical language called penal substitutionary atonement. And it's that way of looking at the cross that the accusation that it's cosmic child abuse, that's the view that is being attacked. And so even some Christian pastors and theologians and leaders understand this view, uh, this meaning of the cross as something which needs to be rejected because they would argue it attempts to hold up as um, heroic. It attempts to valorize and even frame something wicked and violent and abusive as something good and loving. And these uh, same people would say, instead, we need to look to other understandings of the cross that aren't connected to anything to do with violence, anything to do with wrath, anything to do with maybe even judgment. Now, I think it's important for us all to realize that this view is gaining in popularity. Here are some of the reasons for that. I mean, first of all, we are sensitized to the general truth that violence doesn't tend to solve problems. Um, so the thinking says, if our ultimate problem is sin, how is a violent act like the crucifixion going to solve that? Another reason why critiques against penal substitutionary atonement are gaining traction is because we are more sensitized, maybe more so than any generation in history, to the devastating and damaging impact of domestic violence and child abuse. Few things turn our stomach more than those things. And yet, according to critics, we should look at the cross and ask, is that kind of what God is like? Are we seeing the truest nature of God when he takes out his wrath on his son? I think another, another reason why the critique of penal substitutionary atonement is gaining popularity is because, to be honest, we're living in an age where Christians have, uh, even uh, pretty sincere Christians, have a, can have a fairly low-resolution view of the scriptures and core doctrine taught by the scriptures. We can hear this critique, and if we're unfamiliar with the overall scripture scriptural story, if we have sort of a just a vague connection to the gospels and we haven't done a deep dive into what is actually happening in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? What is the actual gospel? What's the heart of Christianity? Then someone can come along and level some of these accusations, and we might not be able to call anything to mind that would cast doubt on those accusations. Then they begin to rumble around in our head and in our heart. We begin to doubt the goodness and graciousness of God. We begin to deconstruct the foundations of this faith that we thought were true, and maybe it is true, but do we want it to be true? And we can spiral 
into doubt and ultimately a hardening of our hearts against God. That's what the accusation that the cross is cosmic child abuse is really designed to do. This accusation is designed to take a central biblical teaching on the cross and turn it into something wicked and unjustifiable, turn it into something that we're ashamed of. Instead of something powerful and glorious and praise-inducing, the goal is to reframe penal substitutionary atonement so that no one wants to be associated with it. And it's all designed to frame God in an incredibly uh, malicious, terrible light. So that's why we need to confront it. First of all, I would argue because the cross is not cosmic child abuse. The Bible makes that very clear, as we'll see in a few moments. And we also need to understand that if we have a low-grade understanding of the cross and what God is doing in and through the cross, we're going to have a very diminished view of the gospel, the heart of Christianity. And that will lead to an apathetic response to the gospel or an uninspired one. I would also argue, I, don't, I haven't heard an argument yet for what remains of the gospel if you dislodge it from the fact that Jesus did die as a substitute in our place, bearing our sins upon the cross. If that isn't part of the gospel, I'm not sure how the gospel kind of works. Because one of the fundamental questions set up in Scripture very early on is if God is holy, 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 and yes, God is love, but God is also justice, and God is also holy, and God is also perfectly righteous, and we are not, and we have rebelled against God, how can God uphold the two dimensions, or these two dimensions of his character, one being he loves us and is love, and he is merciful, but he also needs to be just, which means he does need to punish the wicked. He needs to destroy evil. How is God going to punish evil and wickedness without destroying us? So we need to confront this because there's a lot at stake. Our understanding fundamentally of what it means to look at the cross and to show up on Sunday and to show up to your daily life in response to it hangs in the balance. So how do we confront the accusation that the cross is cosmic child abuse? Well, I think the most important place to start with this accusation are the premises. This accusation smuggles in a bunch of premises uh, right out of the gate that don't get acknowledged. But you, they just get smuggled in and you operate from them moving forward. That's not the way to try and attack the accusation because the premises themselves are poisoned. So let me just go through a few of them because even if you just remember one or two of these, you don't have to remember all of them. If you just remember one or two, this will help immensely when this accusation comes to be able to say, wait a second, you're presuming this. That's actually not true. So for example, this whole idea of cosmic child abuse is what we see happening at the cross presumes that Jesus was somehow forced or that he was victimized by the cross. 
like a helpless abused child in, a, in that dysfunctional abusive relationship. But is that how scripture presents Jesus? Is that, does that even align with Jesus' own teachings about who he was, his own self-understanding? Jesus says this in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I'll hear that again. Jesus is saying, I'm laying down my life. No one's taking it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, of my own free will. And Jesus says, I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Jesus is not some helpless victim. He is moving himself toward the cross in accordance with the plan of the Trinitarian Godhead. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is central to Jesus' mission to be the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world through his substitutionary act to bear the penalty that should come to us and give us the reward that should have gone to him. Another premise is just built on this very uh, subtle, false dichotomy that Jesus is the kind, gentle, meek, loving person who's getting victimized by God the Father, who's full of wrath and vengeance and anger. And yet, that's completely at odds with even maybe the most well-known Bible verse, John 3.16. Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was God's love that compelled uh, the plan and ultimately led to the cross. So this idea that God is this wrathful, uh, spite-ridden deity up in the sky, that only kind of lands if you ignore huge swaths of scripture what jesus says about the father himself and and basic biblical witness it also leads to also that that that's a distortion of jesus right this idea that jesus is kind of like the uh, love-struck hippie and just peace and love and everyone gets together and let's just live in a kumbaya world there's no judgment jesus is never about judgment he's just about love and forgiveness I want to read to you a passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes to the church and he says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And he's going to give relief to you when you are troubled. And then he says this. He says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He, Jesus will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Another premise, false premise, kind of smuggled into this accusation of cosmic child abuse is that Jesus somehow needed to die in order for God to love us. So God's posture towards us was one of anger and hatred, but 
good news, Jesus died, God could vent all that anger, and now all he's left with is love. But again, we just looked at a verse that said, no, because God loved. That's what made the, God's plan of salvation possible. In Romans 8, Paul says, what should we say in response to these things? He's looking at the gospel story, what God has done, and say, how should we respond to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says, wow, you look at the cross, do you know what you see? You see a God who is for you, who wants to save you, who wants to rescue you, who's willing to move heaven and earth to make reconciliation possible, to, yes, punish sin, but to do so in a way that allows you to be redeemed and restored. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The text does not say God demonstrates his wrath towards us in this. No, the cross is a picture ultimately of God's love for us. There's a few other premises. I'm not, I'm not going to mention them all. I've got, I've got a few written down. If you want to know them all, then you can, you can email me, but... I think another one that's really important is that the accusation presents this kind of weird asymmetry within the Trinity, right? So we, we know the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the concept of a God who is three in one is. The New City Catechism summarizes the teaching of the Trinity like this. There are three persons in one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it also says, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, the accusation of cosmic child abuse smuggles in this premise that there's a father who is above and actually has more power over a, the victimized and abused son. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. That Jesus is co-equal with the father. And that means that this is not something which is taking Jesus by surprise. He, again, he's not the victim. That's why his own self-understanding of what the cross is, is that this is part of the plan that I have agreed to. In Ephesians 5, it even talks about the fact that Christ gave, loved the church and gave himself up for his church. It even becomes a picture of how husbands are called to love their wives. Jesus is God the Son, but equally in power and glory, God in human form. So when you look at the cross, you can't see it as this asymmetry of God the victimizer taking his wrath out on Jesus the victim. What you need to see is the Son of God, God himself taking his own requirements, his own righteous requirements upon himself in our place. Is the cross cosmic child abuse? No. Not even close. What we are seeing on the cross isn't a um, wicked display of hate-filled malice and abuse. We're actually seeing a window into divine love. And it's, and it's a complex, it's multidimensional because divine justice and judgment 
and love are all colliding together in a once-in-eternity moment that really does change everything. I mean, it, it, it does change everything, right? I mean, the cross can literally change everything, including your own understanding of your salvation and all that God did to secure it. The accusation that the cross has caused of child abuse is designed to undermine, undermine penal substitutionary atonement. But I love Tim Keller on this because I think he nails it. He says, you can come up with all kinds of other understandings and windows into what's happening at the cross and they might have truths to them, but if you take away as part of that constellation of what's happening at the cross, if you take away penal substitutionary atonement, you will never sing amazing grace with tears in your eyes. And I think he's totally right. So what does that cross mean to you as we move towards Good Friday? I would encourage you to reject the voices, whether they come from within the Christian culture or outside of it. Those voices that seek to twist the cross into a symbol of abusive coercion, I want you to reject them. I want you to remember that accusation doesn't stand, it doesn't stick. And I want you to take these next few weeks to go back into Scripture, to read a good book on the atonement, to ponder anew how the cross reveals in a way that is literally mind-blowing. A God who loves beyond measure, who seeks and saves the lost, who rescues sinners all, all at ultimate cost to himself. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God bless. Thanks for listening.